The World Cup starts this weekend in Doha. There's nothing as universal and as central in sports, at least in my view, as the World Cup. You know, you have billions of people watching it. It's, it taps into the obsessions of, of nations everywhere in the world. This is my colleague Ishan Tharoor. He writes about foreign affairs for The Post. And he loves soccer. There are very few things that connect so many human beings at the same time. And, and when you go to a game as a fan, uh, you are participating in it in an incredibly powerful way as well. But this year's World Cup has a cloud over it. This is a World Cup that is defined by the controversy around it in many ways. And a lot of that controversy has to do with the fact that it's in Qatar, a conservative Muslim country where homosexuality is illegal, free speech is restricted, and public consumption of alcohol is banned. Today, the country announced at the very last minute that they no longer plan to allow alcohol to be sold in stadiums. And while the stakes of whether fans can buy a beer during a game are not life or death— This decision also raises concerns about whether Qatar might renege on other agreements it made with FIFA about suspending local laws and customs. Like, will fans who are gay be at risk? And could there be crackdowns against people who protest? I think it's important to recognize that the World Cup is never just about the World Cup. So many soccer fans like Ashan are left very conflicted about how to feel about this World Cup. How do you acknowledge all of the problems while also celebrating the joys of being a soccer fan at this moment? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 18th. Today, we are bringing you World Cup 101. Ishan spoke with my colleague Arjun Singh about the geopolitical stakes of this huge international showdown. And later in the show, we go to Chuck Culpepper, who is on the ground in Doha, to get more on which players and teams to watch. It's an astonishing World Cup for so many reasons. In 2010, uh, FIFA, which is the governing body of soccer, awarded Russia the World Cup in 2018 and Qatar the World Cup in 2022. That triggered an immediate firestorm of reaction, especially from folks in Europe and the United States who were skeptical about the process of that led to this bid being accepted. Qatar, of course, is a tiny country with no soccer pedigree, uh, no infrastructure at that point in time to host a World Cup and also a country in the middle of the desert where, you know, a summer World Cup would be blazing hot. So people were very skeptical. Uh, In the years since, while numerous FIFA officials, for various reasons, have been implicated in charges of fraud, there is no chain of evidence uh, linking Qatar itself or the Qatari authorities themselves to any kind of active impropriety to to win the World Cup. And so this is a a pretty controversial uh, claim to make that many people still make, that, that there's something obviously corrupt about it. We don't know if that's true or not. What is also deeply important about the World Cup is the scrutiny that it has brought to uh, the situation of human rights on the ground in Qatar. Uh, Like other Gulf monarchies, it's a society where there are many more foreign migrants than actual citizens in the country. Uh, Qatar embarked on this incredible, unprecedented building spree of more than $220 billion worth of infrastructure, including seven new stadiums. That, of course, employed hundreds of thousands of migrant workers, especially from countries in South Asia. 
And uh, you've had human rights groups, NGOs, activists uh, really point to uh, the abuses, the poor conditions, the mistreatment of these workers. Uh, Qatar has responded to a lot of this. It's enacted some pretty significant labor reforms. It It's also cast itself as a, as a target of misinformation and hypocrisy, given that there's been so much scrutiny on this tournament and perhaps less on other earlier tournaments. And so it's it's been a pretty politically combustive uh, buildup to the World Cup, and we'll see if those politics drag on during the tournament. Have those politics percolated down into the teams and the players that are going? How do the athletes talk about this controversy? There's no one answer to that, but you have seen unusual gestures made by various teams. For example, the United States in its training venue and this is, you know, a kind of virtue signaling, but the United States has put up a big rainbow sign in its in its training facility as a sign of solidarity for LGBTQ people in Qatar, a society that is deeply conservative and where homosexuality is technically illegal. Uh, you've had a number of other teams, especially uh, from Europe, come out and make qualified or cautious statements about their support for human rights in the country and their support for LGBTQ rights. Uh, and just as a way of mollifying critics in their own societies who are annoyed that some people are not boycotting the World Cup. Um, at the same time, you know, you have a lot of people in Qatar and elsewhere saying, uh, where do you draw the line uh, when it comes to what is acceptable to participate in and what is not? The global game of soccer is rife with sordid dealings and politically compromised decision-making. You have uh, countries like Saudi Arabia the UAE, Qatar, using their vast petrol wealth and oil resources to buy teams in Europe. And if you're not protesting that, why are you protesting the World Cup in these societies now? I think it's important to recognize that the World Cup is never just about the World Cup. Throughout the history of the tournament, and now we're talking about almost a century of these tournaments, uh, the World Cup has been a vehicle for the prestige of the countries hosting it. You had Mussolini in Italy in 1934 showcasing his fascist regime through the World Cup. You've had an Argentinian dictatorship in 1978 doing a similar kind of exercise in nation-building and nation-branding with their hosting of the World Cup. And now you have Qatar uh, now. I think you go into these events recognizing the political complexity of the moments, but it is also an astonishingly unique and special event uh, on the global stage. And I go there with my eyes open, but also legitimately excited about all that is being convened in this one tiny country. And, you know, I think, too, that, like you said, politics and sports have always been so intertwined. And I know that going into this World Cup, there are a couple of other geopolitical tensions that are happening in there too. Take Iran's team. They're going to be playing in the World Cup and they are doing it with these massive protests going on over there. What does that mean for an Iranian athlete and a fan to watch this team with the backdrop of these protests happening? I mean, the Iran team is by itself the single most interesting story perhaps of the whole tournament. You have, as you said, these big protests taking place in Iran, where we've seen major Iranian soccer idols. I'm talking about some retired players, Ali Karimi, perhaps their most famous player of the last generation, come out and be one of the most vocal cheerleaders of these protests. 
the Iranian players themselves are clearly now, we were led to believe, under a degree of pressure from authorities not to participate in any kind of protests themselves or, or shows of solidarity with the protesters. And so there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on them, both from the authorities and also from probably Iranians in the diaspora, hoping to see them rally to the cause of this pretty fascinating protest movement and pretty courageous protest movement. And then you have on top of that the incredible storyline that, that the U.S. and Iran are going to play each other, you know, two countries that have no direct diplomatic dealings, that are locked in a, a whole slate of major tensions right now on the world stage. And here we have... Uh, in the crucible of the World Cup, uh, a, a pretty eye-catching clash. Now, I know that this is a competition and it's going to be pitting people against each other. People are coming in with big emotions. But I do wonder also, despite the tensions going in, are there opportunities for bridge building and camaraderie between people in different nations? I think back to when the U.S. Olympic basketball team played in 2008 and LeBron James talked about how wonderful it was to meet the other athletes from all of the other nations and the respect they had. Ishan, I'm wondering, do you think the World Cup could also serve as a venue for optimism and community as much as it could be a venue for tensions to play out? You're absolutely right that the World Cups so often generate these wonderful feel-good narratives. I was in Germany in 2006, and that was for many Germans a real coming-out party after the Cold War for them. This was the first time they felt they could be unified and and really rallied uh, around the flag in a way that, you know, for obvious historical reasons, Germans have not been so comfortable about doing in the past and then I was in Russia in 2018, and there was such an incredible feel-good factor there, too. Ordinary Russians were really enjoying all these fans from different countries partying in Moscow. And, you know, it was such a, it was such a tremendously interesting vibe. And you had this feeling of, of a society that lives under certain political constraints, opening up and embracing the world in a certain way. But, of course, uh, the World Cup is fleeting. And, and Russia now, compared to then, is an alien place. And so I think a similar dynamic may happen in Qatar, where uh, people have a great time in Qatar, although it's going to be a particularly unique World Cup in terms of how it's operated and in terms of how <laughs> easily accessible alcohol is. But but I, I think it, there are going to be lots of feel-good stories to emerge from this tournament. But the question is, you know, after it all wraps up and the show moves on, uh, what's that lasting legacy going to be? And I think that's where we see that the vibes don't last for long. That was Ishan Theroar. He writes the newsletter Today's Worldview, which will also have daily coverage of the World Cup. We'll include a link in our show notes if you'd like to sign up. After the break, we go to our colleague Chuck Culpepper on the ground in Doha, where even with all the controversy in the background, people are still so excited about soccer. We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday.
Now we turn to Doha, where my colleague, sports reporter Chuck Culpepper, is on the ground. The fans have started to arrive. There's um, a lot of activity downtown and around the souk, the market, which is a major centerpiece of this city. And you start to see the, the buildup, the excitement. Everybody still has a chance at this point, at least in their minds. You know, you can walk down the street in the middle of town and see groups of fans from, you know, from different places from around the world. Fans from Morocco. Fans chanting for England. There's just something in the air, definitely something in the air. Chuck also spoke to Arjun. So what is kind of the state of the field right now? Who are the teams that we're expecting to see really come out ahead? And what are kind of the underdog stories that people are hoping to see coming out of this? So some of the favorites, Brazil is the number one favorite, I think. They haven't won in 20 years. It's the country that's won it the most, five times. And then you have Argentina, the final uh, World Cup, presumably, of Lionel Messi, uh, one of the big, big stars of the eight billion on this planet. And you have France, which won last time, but might not be as as ready to do so this time because of injuries and so on. And you have England, which started the game way back when and which hasn't won since 1966. That was its only win, but has shown some form in recent international events, you know, since 2018 that could make this the breakthrough time. You have Germany, which is always something to consider. The winner in 2014 most recently, that was its fourth time. And you have Spain, uh, which is on a new generation after having a golden one and winning in 2010. Some of the ones that people think of as a little more long shot, you have Belgium, which has not a very big population compared to some of these others, but has this generation now, which is excellent, finished third last time. And maybe that's the one to look to that would be a little bit of a surprise winner, but a um, plausible one. For Messi, I mean, who who is this guy? I see this guy's name on jerseys all over the place, but I also know he's never won a World Cup. So for Argentina, what would that mean for him to finally achieve that goal? So Lionel Messi is 35 years old. He's one of the most famous people on this planet. You can be walking anywhere in the world and see the jersey with M-E-S-S-I on the back. It can be even in somewhere like, for example, I, don't, I saw one. I saw several of them in Cambodia one time. You know, he played many years for Barcelona, which is where his fame grew. But he's from he's Argentinian, but he played for Barcelona. Now he plays for Paris Saint Germain, and he's one of the great scorers in the history of the game. Just in, you know, all the terms come up: genius, magician, all of that. And this is his fourth World Cup, and it's. He's 35, and it's seen as his last chance, and it's one of the prevailing themes of this event. But he's the one people will be watching. It'll generate the most emotion in this in this tournament. He got to the final in 2014 in Brazil, and Argentina lost 1-0 to Germany, so got kind of close then. But uh, for the most part, his World Cups have not been as joyous as the rest of his career and life. 
Well, and amid all of these great teams that are going to go play, I have to wonder what is the where does the United States fit into all of this? Is the team expected to do really well? Who are some of the big players that people are excited to see? And how far do they expect the U.S. to go? The United States for years and years used to get patted on the head and regarded as what the British call a minnow in the, uh, in the world ocean, so to speak, in the world aquarium, so to speak. But the United States has made great strides and has a young team in their 20s and sometimes late teens, and which embodies what has happened in the United States in terms of the sport. For example, Christian Pulisic. Christian Pulisic is a 21-year-old from Hershey, Pennsylvania, now being called Captain America Commander. The United States uh, leading player. America's first homegrown soccer superstar. Even teammates compare him to a superhero. Captain America. Called Captain America. Grew up in an environment in which soccer was a normal thing for a kid to do. His parents, who both played college soccer at George Mason and were excellent at that, embodied an era when it was kind of a fringe thing to do, when it was kind of an odd thing to do, maybe even a little bit of an eccentric thing to do. Now their son is going to lead this team with the U.S. missed out on the World Cup in 2018 and, you know, is quite a mystery and quite an alluring one in terms of how will it play, how will the young men on this team function and, you know, recent form in exhibitions in September was not so great. Um, But these are the matters of youth and it could work out any which way. And I think that makes it kind of an interesting thing to watch. And are there any key games that the U.S. is going to be playing in that you're particularly excited to watch? Well, the U.S. is in a group with Iran, England, and Wales. I think in particular, the matches with Iran and England are really compelling. Um, England, because it's always that way, and uh, the two of them played each other in South Africa in 2010 and was a match with a lot of fanfare. And I think it was a 1-1 draw, as I recall, which was seen as a defeat for England at that time. And and then the Iran match, which harkens back to 1998 when Iran beat the U.S. in the World Cup, which was just stoked celebrations on the streets there in Iran. And um, and is it one of those matters I referred to, which is when uh, two places from afar get together on the pitch and try to decide it and the the styles are different and the approaches are different and the, we see who wins or draws. <laughs> and how exactly does the tournament work? Like, do these teams have one chance to play and then they're knocked out? Or how do people advance in this tournament? So there are eight groups, four teams each. And so everyone plays three matches within that group and is is assured three matches without getting kicked out of here. Um, And after they play those three matches, the top two from each group, from each of the eight groups, moves on to the what's called the knockout stage. And that's 16 teams in a tournament uh, format, single elimination. Uh, You lose and you're gone. And it proceeds from there to to the final. And it takes, you know, from November... 20 until December 18 to sort all that out. One thing that's kind of unusual about this year's World Cup is that it's being held in the fall instead of normally in the summer. And I imagine that's because of the heat and cutter. But what does that mean for the teams who are having to play at a different time of year than normal? Oh, I think this 
is probably the biggest issue sports-wise when you look at how this thing will be played. All the leagues around the world uh, just finished playing and took a break to play this World Cup. I'll give you, for example, England, the biggest league in the world. The English Premier League, the top league in England, and the top league of any sport in the world, the most watched league in the world, begins its season in August. It runs from August until May, typically. But this year, because this World Cup had to be planted on the calendar at this point in November because of the weather, anybody who plays in that league, and there's people from all over the world playing in that league, their teams played right up until last week. And that's very rare for a World Cup. And so the idea that, that they're taking off in the middle of the season has all kinds of questions about potential injuries, about some injuries that have already happened that have prevented players from playing here, and about what kind of form these teams will be able to, able to have given that the players have all been playing on their club teams until up till last week mostly and have not had the time to become cohesive again as national teams before this major event gets started. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Chuck Culpepper covers sports for The Post. He and Ashan spoke to my colleague Arjun Singh. This episode was produced by Alana Gordon and Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter. We're going to close the show with the sounds of fans near that big market in Doha. These fans are from Algeria. And even though that country's team did not qualify this time, fans just wanted to be there anyways, to be part of the first World Cup in the Arab world. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. My co-host is Elahe Azadi. Lucy Perkins is our editor. Our producers are Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, and Renny Svernovsky. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.